0: Ruth, you inspired me this morning. Today's sermon is about doing, so I need another doer. I need a volunteer to come help me read our sermon scripture this morning. Is there anybody willing to volunteer to read scripture with me this morning? Beautiful. You want to read from there or you want to come up front? Whatever you want. Let's come up front. Then we'll have a little back and forth.
1: Okay.
0: All right, so... Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Come on, right right here. And it's the Beatitudes. All right? But there's another part of scripture in Luke that kind of mirrors this. And so there's a little back and forth. So I'll be reading the part from Matthew, and we'll just read straight through, top to bottom. Matthew chapter 4. It's on page 4 in the New Testament for those following along at home. Um, And then right here, we're going to have another reader from Luke chapter 6, which is on page 60 in the New Testament. And So I want you to listen as we're both reading. You should hear some things that are the same, but I invite you to compare and contrast the readings. You do the green, and we'll read straight through. Are you ready? Yes. Nailed it. All right, good. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan.
1: He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for the power came out of him and healed all of them.
0: When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
1: Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God.
0: Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled.
1: Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets.
0: Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you here ends the reading well done thank you that was awesome round of applause hello thank you yes all right good we affirm people who volunteer to lead in the church the sermon on the mount pretty famous rough spot to be in as a pastor because it's been preached on a hundred billion times But it's the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitude is just this anglicized word from Latin that just means extremely blessed. God's favor. God is partial to you. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it takes up pretty much all of chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. It is the longest and fullest continued discourse of our Savior that we have on record in all of the Gospels. Other places, Jesus will say something, heal somebody, take a nap. Say some things, heal somebody, go up on a mountain. But this is one full scope of a sermon that Jesus was preaching. Now, parts of this sermon are mirrored, as we heard, in the reading from Luke from the Sermon on the Plain. This features Jesus heading up a mountain, but then giving the sermon on the way back down at a level spot. Some scholars believe they're the same sermon while others simply hold on that Jesus frequently said a lot of the same stuff in a lot of different places. So it's not the same. Either way, when we read through the Sermon on the Mount, and if we're looking for the same themes in different parts of Luke, we will find that these moments with the Christ are not heavy with deep theology, dogmatic or doctrinal beliefs and statements, okay? These times with Christ are instead a long list of agenda items, of things that we are to be doing. This sermon is not about what we as followers of Christ are called to simply believe in, but it is about all the stuff we're called to do, okay? It's not about thinking about singing in the choir, it's about actually doing it. See, it's, it's, it's coming together. It's all about you today, Ruth. Alright, but this is how we are called to exist in this world and how we are to interact with one another. In this sermon, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the physical manifestation of eternal love is not speaking thoughts into our minds for thinking, but is instead putting tools into our hands and reviewing the blueprints For what it will take to literally build up the kingdom of God. That's what this whole long three chapters is about. So, as we continue to look at this text this morning, I invite you to consider what is it that you're being called to do? What tools has God equipped you with for doing? How are the words of Christ providing instruction and direction? So here we are at the end of chapter 4 in Matthew. And we're getting a glimpse at the kinds of crowds that are gathering around Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He was getting quite the reputation for the things he was teaching, the good news he was preaching, and all of the healing that was happening, that he was doing, the needs of the soul, the mind, and the body were all being addressed. And the people were coming from everywhere just to be in His presence, to see what would happen, to have their needs met. And as chapter 5 begins, one such crowd is gathering, and Jesus pauses to observe the crowd, to look at the people. It's not difficult to imagine that Jesus was moved by these people. By his ever-increasing interactions with those he was meeting by these large groups of people who were coming to him in great need, the stories of struggle that they must have told him as he healed them and the children. I hear those stories today from members in our community when people of great need and great pain are coming in searching of healing. They share these stories. And people are not different today than they were thousands of years ago. And so the stories they must have shared with Jesus, he can see the loss, their experiences of struggle, he can read it on their faces. And then there is this unknown energy that simply comes from being in a large crowd. Have you ever been in a large crowd? Anybody in a large crowd? Come on, I've seen y'all at the JPJ. I know you know what it's like to be in a large crowd of people. There is this electricity. That goes through everyone when you're all boxed in there tight. There's a large group of people. You're bunched in those tiny seats that are too short for my knees. You've got to ride the bus back to the parking lot. You've got people standing with their butt right in your face. There's an electricity that goes through when there's all these people gathered together, large masses of people. And when things are going good, it's awesome. But what about when things aren't going so good? There are times when sports arenas are filled with people and there's no game going on. After an earthquake, a flood, a hurricane, a mass shooting, people gather in mass together in these areas. And so here's Christ gathered with the masses gathered with people who have come in need of healing, people who are living under empirical oppression, people living under occupation, people who were sick, afflicted with diseases and pains, both mentally, emotionally, and physically unwell. And no matter how much we can reason with ourselves, rationally, logically, to be able to think about God's favor for the suffering and the oppressed and the marginalized. Oh, God is with the suffering, those who are hurting, those who are in pain. Yeah, God is with them. But it's very hard to feel that when the full scope of the world's suffering is standing right in front of you. And those of you who have ever done or been in any kind of trauma situations, who have been part of the military or who have responded to floods or other natural disasters or things like that, you understand this. Gone on mission trips. When you see the world suffering up close, it's harder to feel God's goodness in that sometimes. And so these people, this mass of people who probably feel abandoned by God, forgotten by God, or even intentionally cast aside by God, have come to Jesus. And because we know who Jesus is, we can say that they have been forgotten, they feel abandoned, they feel cast aside by God. But now, God speaks to them. God pauses at the base of the mountain and looks at them. God speaks and God blesses them. God sees them. God knows them. God claims them. And through Christ, God has been healing them and now reminds them that as God's people, as children of God, they are blessed. They are blessed. When you live in a world where there is so much pain and suffering, you need to hear these things repeatedly. It's true for them and it's true for us. Living in a world where there is so much pain and suffering means that we need to hear over and over and over again the truths that God has already spoken into being. God has, after all, always favored the oppressed. This is not news for the disciples and those gathered. They know the stories about what it means to be delivered from captivity, from slavery, to be provided for, to be healed. They know that God does those things. That's not a new idea for us here today either. But we need to be reminded and thus reopened to recognizing and relying upon the ways that God works in and through our lives and our community. Even when we live under destructive, oppressive, and empirical forces. My friends, it takes practice, a lifelong practice to recognize God's strange ways among us. Because so much of what we're shown, what we consume, and how we are molded is in direct opposition to God's blessings and goodness. Right? If you make enough money, you can be happy. Right? If I only had enough money, I'd be happy. Access to power provides security. Those who have been rejected by society have no value. The self is more important than the collective. Strive to be normal. Try and be normal. Things that are different are dangerous and threatening. The ones who are suffering must have done something to bring it on themselves it's their fault their life is bad because of choices they've made it's their fault that's why they're sick that's why they're poor these are the way that the world works these are the biases the biases that we learn from an early age i know this because i was taught them That man is on the street corner because of choices that he made. Do not give him any money. I've been taught that. These kinds of thinkings and these kinds of ideals, they keep power in place. They perpetuate shame. And they limit transformation. And for centuries, these ideals and others like them have been training people to carry them on even to the next generation. But our faith gives us something different. Our faith says that you can live in this dominant worldview, but you now have the ability to see behind the curtain, to see what's really going on, that you can see that there is emptiness in excess. You can see behind that curtain and you can see the ways that participating in evil and sin does damage to your soul. You can see that promises of power are false. And that's why... There's really no such thing as a neutral way of living in this world. Not under our current structures anyways. And not with so many histories of violence still unfolding. In this sermon by Jesus and to the masses that are gathered, Jesus is reminding the disciples of what it looks like to move in the world with the bias of God. The bias of God of the Beatitudes with God's favor to move into the world with the same partiality of God to think that God is partial the Beatitudes remind us of what we already know but we need to hear again and again and again for ourselves for each other, for this aching world for those and the parts of really all of us that are distanced from God by complicity with evil and suffering. God's favor, God's closeness, God's justice, God's presence, God's love, God's bias and partiality are doing what they've always done and that's working to restore the rightful balance of the world. And this is the work to which we have been called to do this is the doing we are not simply to think of a better world or believe in a better world but we are called to use the tools that Christ has given us to help build it now and I want to expand on this for just a minute because I think in this reading of the Beatitudes I want to offer a word of caution I think there is a way of reading this text that I think is dangerous. I believe it will damage your soul. And as your pastor in a United Methodist Church, I am mostly concerned with your souls. How is it with your soul is one of our favorite United Methodist queries. I think I talked about that last month. And so I think that it's very possible to read this Scripture in a dangerous way that will damage your soul. Because I believe it's possible to read these verses in a very disconnected, spiritually distant, and privileged way. I believe it's possible to interpret these blessings in a way that simply objectifies or sensationalizes these disabilities or differences almost to the point where the systemic and cultural barriers are not only maintained, but then they're they're reinforced. And I say this because when you're not poor or homeless, when you're not sick or mourning someone, when you're not marginalized or persecuted, it takes a lot of extra work to empathize rather than sympathize. God always empathizes, never sympathizes. You can think that the poor are blessed and then do nothing about it. You can believe that mourners will eventually find comfort, that the hungry will be filled somehow, and that the persecuted will eventually be rewarded at the end of time. But I would note that God doesn't work that way. God does not stand at a distance shedding tears for the oppressed and the marginalized and the hurting. God is the oppressed. God is with the oppressed. God is always working to overturn these structures and these systems that make our differences into disadvantages. This is what the Beatitudes remind us of. They are not platitudes for the privileged, but they call the privileged into solidarity with those who need it. These blessings are a glimpse of what is true. And when we are so convinced by our own privilege, our own access, our own idea of our own normalcy, that we are not mourning, that we are not hungry for justice, that we're not facing persecution with those who are being persecuted, but if we are instead living comfortably in partnership with the evils of this world, then it is we who have distanced ourselves from God. And that is where the danger is. To be distanced from God is to be in danger. God is with the oppressed. God is the oppressed. The Beatitudes should inspire collective change, not individual pity. They remind us, both the marginalized and the privileged, of what God is doing in this world and our place in it so as we come to this table today i invite you to think about who would you be who are you in this crowd of people who have come to be with christ who are you are you someone who has come in need of healing Someone who is hurt by oppressive systems? Someone who is physically unwell? Someone who is hungry for a better world? Are you someone who feels forgotten by God? Or are you a person of privilege? Is your life going pretty good right now? Do you make enough money? Are you feeling well? Is your family still living? Are you a person with wealth and power? If you answered yes to any of that, this meal is for you. It's for you. This is the meal that unites us. This is the table where God reminds us of what is true. This is the place where healing, reconciliation, and transformation begins. This is where God claims you. This is where God blesses you. This is where God calls you into doing. And this is the place where the soul, the mind, and the body are made whole.